Hello, welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game, and occasionally a 7800 game, and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 207. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Hope your January is going great. We had a little bit of snow here yesterday, but nothing that, well, actually Friday night. It's a Sunday as I'm recording, but nothing that amounted to a whole lot. It's kind of chilly. I know you're worried about me being cold. Don't worry, I am appropriately layered. So all is good there. And I hope things are good where you are too. Speaking of cold and ice, which we weren't really, but this is my segue to the flat earth with a ring of ice around it. Maybe that's why I'm cold. I don't know. Let's ask this guy. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship. Or else he'll go splat. He's mad, Mac Hughes. Mad Mac Hughes. I guess Mad Mike is still resting up from the holidays because the social media is pretty quiet. On January 1st, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, the Rocket Man Mad Mike's fl- mission to prove the Flat Earth page on Facebook posts just uh, a, a, a New Year's greeting, basically. As we launch into 2020, we have a feeling it's going to be one hell of a year. Cheers to all of you, and thank you for your support. Find the film at uh, realrocketman.com. New platform coming soon, which I think they've been saying for a while. So get on that, says the man who's been saying for a year that there'll be a new merchandise store. Uh, That would be me. Uh, Go play some old games. They've missed you. Shirts and mugs still available at the old store, which I'll mention later. Anyway, and then they just say that they're on Twitter and Instagram at This Is Rocket Man. A quick Google search, which serves as research for me on this podcast, doesn't really reveal anything new that I can see. If you type Flat Earth into Google, the most recent item that comes up is Flat Earth Frequently Asked Questions, the Flat Earth Wiki, December 6th, 2019. Welcome to the Flat Earth Society, and thank you for taking the time to go through this Frequently Asked Questions. It was great to address the many misconceptions a round earther may have about the Flat Earth Theory. In the background, you might hear my cat sneezing. Uh, Ironically, it's not the cat named Sneezer who has the sneezing problem. It's the cat named Zorro. Uh, Okay, he stopped. You okay, buddy? All right. So this page was created to address the many misconceptions around Earther might have and to act as an easily accessible entry point into the mainstream flat Earth model. Mainstream? Really? So, among the questions, was the Flat Earth Society? What do all of the acronyms mean? What evidence do you have? Is the flat earth theory connected to a religion? People have been to space. How have they not discovered that the earth is flat? Let's look at that one. There's more, but let's look at that one. The most commonly accepted explanation of this is that the space agencies of the world are involved in a conspiracy, faking space travel and exploration. This likely began during the Cold War's space race, in which the USSR and the USS, oh, USSR, kids go ask your parents, and USA were obsessed with beating each other into space to the point that each faked their accomplishments in an attempt to keep pace with the other's supposed achievements. Since the end of the Cold War, however, the conspiracy is most likely motivated by greed rather than political gains, and using only some of their funding to continue their fake space travel saves a lot of money to embezzle for themselves. Please note we are not suggesting that space agencies are aware that the Earth is flat and actively covering the fact up. Alright. They depict the Earth as being round simply because that is what they expect it to be. Okay, but you just said they faked this stuff to win the Cold War. Alright, anyway. Flat Earth Society doesn't lend much credibility to photographic evidence. Too easily manipulated and altered. What, what does the Earth look like? How is circumnavigation possible? 
The Earth is in the form of a disk, with the North Pole in the center and Antarctica as a wall surrounding the known continents. This is the generally accepted model among members of the society. Circumnavigation is performed by moving in a great circle around the North Pole. The Earth is surrounded on all sides by an ice wall that holds the oceans back. The ice wall is what explorers have named Antarctica. Beyond the ice wall is a topic of great interest to the Flatter Society. To our knowledge, no one has been very far, very far, past the ice wall and returned to tell of their journey. What we do know is that it encircles the Earth and serves to hold in our oceans and helps protect us from whatever lies beyond. That would be dragons. They have a picture of what they think the Earth might look like. There are other models, however, that they uh, freely admit. How do you explain day-night cycles? Uh, they've got sort of a, an animation here of what how day-night works in the flat Earth model. It's basically just the, the sun spinning, I guess. Looks kind of stupid. The sun moves in circles around the North Pole. When it is over your head, it's day. When it's not, it's night. The light of the sun is confined to a limited area, and its light acts like a spotlight upon the Earth. All right. So they've put a lot of thought into this theory that nobody, except a few people, actually think is true. Now, having said that, throughout history, there have been ideas that many, 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 many people thought were stupid that turned out to be true. Uh, but that was because science tested it and said, Okay, yeah, I guess that is true. Um, whereas here, you've got all sorts of evidence that says, nope, stop talking about it. But you got pioneers like Mad Mike, you know, holding the torch and giving me things to talk about at the top of this podcast. So you keep going, Mad Mike, and I'll keep doing this segment. But for now, the segment is done. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship. Or else he'll go splat He's Mad Mike Hughes Mad Mike Hughes Zero sneezing again. Okay, he stopped. Someday, when I'm a rich podcaster, I'll have a, you know, a soundproof studio uh, in which to do my podcasting. My son, Henry, who's been a frequent co-host on the show, already has in his head, because he's my boy, plans for a man cave in the basement which will be part podcast studio part youtube recording studio for him he's 10 but he's already convinced someday he's going to have a youtube drawing channel and i forget what the other part of the basement he he has in mind is going to be so we'll see if that happens someday other news oh as i'm watching this doctor who is finally back on the air after a year with no new doctor who episodes season 12 uh series 12 is just started Last week, part two of the two-part opener uh, airs tonight as I'm recording. Spyfall, parts one and two. I won't say anything to spoil it, in case you guys are Doctor Who fans, but you don't have BBC America or other legal access to watch the episode right away, or you just haven't gotten around to it, so I won't say anything specific, but it was excellent. Series 11 took some justified knocks for being too safe, for having good characters, but not necessarily great writing, frankly. Uh, with some exceptions, of course, but overall, it was just kind of a meh season. But they, you know, came flying out of the gate for Series 12. It was excellent. Tension was there, the humor was there, the action was there, uh, the Doctor was on point, being the Doctor, the companions, or sorry, they call them friends now, were on point. I still think the TARDIS is a little crowded, but that's a discussion for a Doctor Who podcast. Uh, not for an Atari podcast. Point is, I really liked it. I'm looking forward to watching part two tonight. 
so I should probably get on with things so that I can do that. If you have thoughts about Doctor Who, you know, what the hell, send them to me, and uh, we can have a mini uh, Doctor Who conversation. All right, well, let's get on to this week's game. Hey, what what's that noise? That's right, for this week's game, we're leaping into the future of Atari with an Atari 7800 port of Joust from, I think, 1984? I didn't write it down here, but I think that's when it was. Got it! Joust! Joust was originally, as a lot of you probably already know, an arcade game developed by Williams Electronics released in 1982, popularizing the concept of two-player cooperative gameplay by being more successful at it than its predecessors. This is all according to Wikipedia, by the way. Use a button and joystick, duh, to control a knight riding a flying ostrich. The object is to the objective is to progress through levels by defeating waves of enemy knights riding buzzards. I think throughout my field report and stuff, I refer them to them as being kind of like ostriches. My apologies to both ostriches and buzzards. I still think ostrich is a better comparison. John Newcomer led the development team, which include Bill, oh boy, Futzenreuter, Janice Woldenberg Miller, former surname Hendrix, in case you were wondering, Python Angelo, which is my new favorite name ever, Tim Murphy, and John Kotlarik. Newcomer aimed to create a flying game with cooperative two-player gameplay while avoiding the popular space theme. The game was well-received in arcades and by critics who praised the gameplay, the mechanics of which influenced other developers. Joust was followed by a sequel four years later and was ported to numerous home and portable platforms, including Atari publishing Joust for its own systems and under the Atari Soft label for others, Atari 2600, 5200, 
8-bit family Apple II, Macintosh, and MS-DOS. It was ported to the Nintendo Entertainment System, programmed by Satoru Iwata. FreezeNet.com says the game was released in 1987. Coming to, into this game, even though I never had much exposure to the 7800, one game that I do see referenced a bit is Joust. Since this is a game people do talk about, it is with interest that I try this to find out why people discuss it from time to time. Gives a little summary of the game. Uh, they refer to them as ostriches. See, I'm telling you, ostrich is a better comparison, Wikipedia. Jeez. One point that needs to be made, according to this review, is the fact that the level gradually evolves as you progress through the waves. In the second wave, the lava fills up. By the fourth wave, the bridges on the lower portions burn up. By wave five, platforms begin to disintegrate. Hands can grab you from the lava pools. Escape routes become less and less. The game gradually becomes more difficult as time goes on until you lose all of your lives. <sighs> I've had a lot of coffee this morning, by the way. One thing that is pretty clear is the fact that a low, a low of thought, a lot of thought, I assume, was put into this game. With so many details to consider, the game can be pretty enriching. While a lot of 7800 games uh, have a fixed setting, this game setting is constantly changing. Pretty good factor in making this a good experience, to say the least. Reviewer also likes the use of momentum, which increases the difficulty of the controls, but adds a sense of realism. As I noted in my field report, my favorite part of this game is the little cartoony screeching noise that your ostrich makes when you try to stop fast. It's pretty delightful. Reviewer says it's easy to see how other games can draw inspiration from this. There are a lot of solid core concepts to be had here. The level design reminds me of the earliest Mario Brothers games. While ideas can be borrowed and improved on, does that make the original great? Not necessarily. It, at a minimum, means the original was on a good track. Like other Atari 2600, or 7800 games rather, this game was released when the NES was soaking up a lot of attention. While people say it's a port that is very close to the original arcade version, game development is moving forward at this point in time. While in some respects it does hold out with some of its intricacies, in other areas this port is a bit dated. Pla uh, graphics had their strengths and weaknesses, the platforms and the enemies are reasonably well done, some of the blockiness however does show through the text, and the heads-up display. The stark black background is a bit of an eyesore, especially since a lot of NES games have long ago moved away from this style. Not much music, sound effects are okay, the audio didn't irritate me as much as I thought it would, maybe because there's a lot of sound effects going on. I was expecting something great, but while the game wasn't bad, I don't think it lived up to be one of the great games ever made. The learning, learning curve is pretty steep, and the difficulty really doesn't let up that much. General gameplay, 18 out of 25. Replay value, 7 out of 10. Graphics, 7 out of 10. Audio, 3 out of 5. 8-Bit Central gave the game a 4 out of 5 ships rating. If you've ever been to a renaissance fair, you have to admit jousting on an ostrich is far more fun, especially if it's a flying ostrich. Another arcade game born of a time when common sense was hardly a requisite for a game premise, Joust was a really fun game that was even better as a two-player affair. They point out that the manual doesn't ever refer to ostriches, but they are ostriches, right? Long neck, round feathered body, long gangly le legs, what else could they be? The operative term in the manual is buzzard. Um, yeah, does someone have a trademark on ostriches? <laughs> they also think the uh, controllers are interesting. Moving and flapping lent well to the Atari 2600 joystick, as did most games with two functions. Where this one differs most from the arcade is the graphics. Platforms don't have that rocky ledge feel of the arcade, the lava pit is the red area, and the characters are all single colors, lacking any detail. On the other hand, the gameplay is quite good and gives a good overall experience. Including the two-player option was awesome. I have not tried this, by the way, with the two-player. I think it would be fun to get Henry here to, uh, to try it. He was not available for recording at this time, but uh, maybe I'll get him to sit down and play it. Final Judgment, Atari Joust is somewhat scarce on graphics, but the gameplay brings back the arcade challenge. Inclusion of the two-player play, two duop mode makes this a really fun game for two. 
Alright, well enough of that. How do we actually play this game? Because I just realized I didn't tell you that. And you're probably all very confused. Joust, what is joust? Ostriches, what are ostriches? Eggs, what are eggs? Well, I'm going to help you out, my friends. Because you see, there are alien worlds, and then there are alien worlds, exclamation point. Who could have predicted that you'd ever find yourself this far from home, astride an alien ostrich under attack by bird-born Avengers? Wait, I thought that reviewer said they mostly talked about buzzards in the manual. I'm very confused. Anyway, so how do you play? According to the manual, you insert the joystick cartridge into your Atari 7800 Pro system, as explained in your owner's manual, and turn on your console. If you can't get back that, past that part, you're not going to do well with this game. That's my prediction. Move the controller handle forward or backward, or press select to choose a one or two player game. In a two player game, the knights sometimes battle the opponents together, and sometimes battle both the opponents and each other. Move the controller handle to the left or right to choose a difficulty level, beginner, intermediate, advanced, or expert. I don't think I said, but I was on the intermediate level for the field report. Use the controller handle to move your bird left and right. The longer you hold the handle to the side, the faster the bird moves. Press the controller button repeatedly to make him fly. Press pause to pause the game. Press it again to resume play. As a bird-born knight, you ride an ostrich into combat, beginning the game with 5 lives. For each 20,000 points you score, you earn an extra life. Your opponents are the buzzard riders. There are three types, each more fearsome than the one before. The bounder, least fearsome, wears red. The hunter wears gray. And the shadow lord, most fearsome, wears blue. The buzzard riders attack in waves. Both you and the buzzard riders materialize for the first time in the gray space on top of the ledges. Until a bird and rider fully materialize, they're protected from attack. Once moving, they become fair game for a joust, in which one mounted knight attacks another. The winner of a joust is the rider whose mount is highest at the moment of contact. If the mounts are at the same level, the joust is a draw. If you lose a joust, you lose a life, and you materialize again, if you have any lives remaining, in a gray space. If your opponent loses, his suddenly riderless mount lays an egg in frustration. I think we've all done that. Nothing to be ashamed of. The egg then sails through space until it comes to rest on a ledge or falls into the lava and is destroyed. If it's on a ledge, pick it up quickly or it will hatch another opponent at the intermediate level, and an even more menacing opponent at the advanced and ex expert levels. Sometimes a fast-moving pterodactyl tries to eat you. I think we've all been there too. To save yourself, you must be quick and precise, lancing the opponent in the mouth. Wow, that is weirdly specific. Beneath the lowest ledge lives the troll of the lava pits. Okay. After the second wave of attacking buzzard riders, for some reason, when I read the sentence, or the start of the sentence, no, the whole sentence. Anyway, beneath the lower ledge lives the troll of the lava pits. I flashed suddenly on the typical drawing of the flat earth. I don't know why. The, the flat disc with the ring of ice around it, and presumably a dragon, or possibly a troll, living on the other side. Anyway. Back to the manual. After the second wave of attacking buzzard riders, the troll's fire burns away the bridges that kept the jousters safe from, safe from him. Any jouster who falls into the lava pit dies. If you fly too near the pits, the troll's hand reaches out and draws you toward the deadly lava. Except at the beginning, beginner level. If the troll captures you, you may be able to escape by flying away fast and breaking his grip. When you've vanquished all your opponents and picked up all the eggs in a wave, a new wave with new menaces begins. Uh, the waves are survival wave, egg wave, terry wave, spelled P-T-E-R-R-Y, team wave, that's two players, and gladiator wave, which is also two players. 
and then there are various points amounts you can get for doing stuff at those levels. For example, you get 500 points for a bounder, five, uh, 750 for a hunter, 1500 points for a shadow lord. The first egg you pick up in a round is 250 points, 500 for the second, 750 for the third, fourth and above, 1000 points, you get 500 bonus points for grabbing an egg midair. Displaying your skill, like surviving, basically, or cooperating, or unseating another player, Destroying a pterodactyl, losing a life, points values range from 50 points. Why, you get 50 points for losing a life? I didn't notice that. Anyway, 50 points up to 3,000 points. And I already said you earn an extra life for every 20,000 points you score. Current score and number of lives are shown at the bottom of the screen. Player 1 on the left, player 2 on the right. No more than 4 lives can be shown, even if more have been earned. Final scores remain on screen during the demonstration sequence that follows each game. And that is how you play Joust for the 7800. I already told you what the reviewer said. I did that backwards this time because I wanted to shake things up. Also, I forgot that I hadn't read the manual yet. I think overall people like this game. But the real question is, the burning issue of our times is, what did I think of this game? Here's something to think about first. After the break, if a giant bird lays an egg mid-flight, is the bird in fact laying that egg, or is it launching that egg? Discuss. With all due respect to vegetarians, to the ostrich-like fake birds in this game, and to the psychologist who is eventually going to have to figure out why this is, for some reason, when I look at this game, Joust, I am reminded of, and hungry for, the roasted chicken dinners my family got most Friday nights during a large portion of my childhood at, you know, restaurants that basically if you wanted something to eat, it had to be roasted chicken. And for whatever reason, that's what I think of when I think of this game. I will pause for you to go get something to eat, and then we'll play the game. I like that little uh, chime that plays when you start the game. That's pretty cool. I like the, uh, the entrance that the little joust guy makes. I especially love that little noise. The little Looney Tunes type screeching uh, brakes noise that your character makes when he stops on a dime. That's pretty awesome. I'd play the whole game just for that. Um, the 7800 port of Joust it looks really nice. As far as I can remember, it looks a lot like the arcade version. Your little opponent person whose name I can't remember. I don't know what's holding up these little platform things. What the hell was that? Some sort of... Oh, the pterodactyl. Alright. See, I was distracted by the pterodactyl and I lost a life. Jerks. I'm glad you're extinct. Haha. Come here, egg. Ha. Gonna have me an omelet. I love the entrance. Rise up out of the ground and got the little chime. And just looks, it looks really good. All that said, I'm not a huge joust fan. Um, I, I don't I don't really like the the jousting aspect of joust, which I guess is a problem. 
Um, you know, trying to position yourself, it's so hard, you got to be above the guy, which seems weird to me. It seems like you should be, you know, face-to-face -face kind of thing, but I guess it'd be hard for the game to figure out who won in that case. But it never really grabbed me, the game never really grabbed me in the arcade either, I guess for that reason. Oh, pterodactyl! I don't like to brag, but I'm at 30, no, 5,700 points, 6,200 points. I know, you're all envious. No survival points awarded. Well, screw you. Wave 3. That stuff on fire now. In the game, not in my house. Though if it was, oh, I fell into the lava pit. Thy game is over. I didn't see what my final score was, but it was, let's say, impressive. And you'll all be jealous, so I'll save you. Oh, there it is. 8,000 points. I know. I know. But I am a professional podcaster. All right, back to you in the studio. Hey, Atari fans. This is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Card by Card podcast. Join Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review cartridge-based games for the Atari's last answer, the 8-bit gaming system, as well as delve deep into their history. Kieran will also introduce everyone to the UK's budget games. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. Here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games and odd thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. The Bumper the Field Report, the XEGS promo spot, the Misery Banana promo spot. So here's the thing about Joust for the 7800. I do, I do, I do like green eggs and ham from ostrich meat. Wait, sorry. I mixed up my Dr. Seuss and my Joust as one does. I, I mentioned in the Field Report that even the arcade version of Joust was number one that really grabbed me. Um, I don't... I, I think this is an interesting concept for a game. I appreciate that the designers were trying to get away from the standard space game. I don't know. I guess I still don't love this game. I am more intrigued, because I hadn't thought about it, but with the, the two-player mode, I think it would be fun to get someone to play with me, to get a friend, basically. Or, you know, you know in lieu of friends, uh, make my kid play. Because uh, I think that would be fun. Uh, but the game is fine. The game looks really good. I agree. It seems to be a pretty faithful port with those couple of limitations that the reviewers mention. Yeah, it's a good game. I just, uh, I don't know if it wows me necessarily. Maybe if I played a little bit more, uh, I'd be wowed. I don't know. If you have thoughts about Joust, any version of Joust, let me know. It's story time. Atari Bites Yes, it's story Story, story, story time 
with Bill. This week's story is titled, The Infinite Circus. On the outskirts of the galaxy, the fourth moon of a dead planet sits just as quietly. You might be surprised to know that before the Galactic Highway was rerouted as a favor to business interests by Imperial President Blard, the planet and the moons above were quite busy indeed. After Blarg's impeachment on corruption charges, mandatory cryogenic freezing and launching into the next galaxy with nothing to listen to but Martian harmonica music, a bill was introduced in the Galactic Senate that would have created an off-ramp for the planet. The planet at that time still had citizens with some clout, i.e. credits to spend, and wanted, to, and wanted bodies to patronize their businesses. The bill was defeated, however, when Senate leader Mushu tripped on a tentacle and died from the resulting head injury. The new Senate leader had once been served runny eggs in a diner on the planet's surface, and his ill will killed the bill. But back in the day, the fourth moon was home to the Infinite Circus. This was the premier, or so it claimed, venue for marvelous acts of all kinds. Tightrope walkers, fire eaters, giant cars inserting themselves into tiny clowns. But the circus, like everything else on the planet, couldn't survive without revenue, and it eventually closed gradually falling into disrepair and mingling with the planetary dust. Back in the day, the premier attraction at the Infinite Circus was the Legion of Birdbat Riders, skilled riders who emerged out of the sedentary mists of the East astride massive winged beasts. You might call them ostriches, but they would be insulted. The beasts, extinct now for so goes the Infinite Circus, so goes the company, were called Tomads and had long legs, great flowing wings, and row upon row of feathers streaked forest green and umber. Their large eyes conveyed a perpetual air of disdain, and they were, frankly, jerks. The birdbat riders had to be fearless, well-trained, and frankly, have nothing better to do. As a result, the birdbat riders, or simply birdbacks, tended to be jerks themselves. As the circus neared its peak just before the end times, there was no bigger birdbat rider or bigger jerk than Colin. Hey, Colin would say as the circus's other big draw, Eleanor, rode in on her bird who let the side saddle in here. Eleanor did indeed ride side saddle atop moon dust. She did this because her costume was mostly made of tin, for complicated reasons, and it was difficult to straddle the bird. Whenever Colin would shout this, both moon dust and Eleanor would shake their heads dismissively, and Eleanor would shout back, got to ride side saddle. I've got more down there to protect than you. Then Colin would laugh and grunt to his bird. Mystery. Girls, man. Both Colin and Eleanor had served as knights in the Galactic Federation. Colin liked to tell war stories at night in the bunkhouse after the last performance. Eleanor liked to contradict him. Did I ever tell you boys about the time I liberated Kefalon from the Blarg with just my fists and Mystery's flatulence? He'd say to the other performers, never mind most of them were women. I hope not, Eleanor would say from across the room, because you were never on Kefalon. I assigned you to kitchen duty on Phasma. By the way, during the war, Eleanor was Colin's commanding officer. Then Colin would whisper to the others, Well, don't say nothing, but I had secret assignments from higher up. No, you didn't, Eleanor would call over. She had really good hearing. After the war, Colin was immediately drawn to the glitz of the infinite circus. He wowed the owners with his reckless abandon and mystery speed. They could do barrel rolls and other tricks that would make bird, most birds barf, if not explode their brains. Mystery possessed unheard of genetic thrust vectoring, that allowed him to do amazing things, which Colin was happy to take credit for. That bird would be on a bun with some fries and a cola at a fast food joint if it wasn't for me, Colin would say. 
Eleanor's journey to the infant circus was a little more circuitous. After a particularly nasty firefight on Okana 9, she retired from the Galactic Federation with full honors. She tried private consulting, but found the mixture of military and money distasteful. After being a talking head on the news channels, she felt empty. Civilian jobs were no more fulfilling. How could she go from putting her life on the line for the galaxy, a life of service for other people, to a life of serving two other people, be it food or insurance or footwear? Eleanor attended the Infinite Circus with her niece one afternoon and was immediately intrigued. Not in love, mind you, but intrigued. She could never quite explain why she decided to sign up. She joked having to continue paying for Moondust Chow herself was too much of a burden. But sign up she did, and never looked back. Until the circus closed, that is. Before the last show, though he'd never admit it, Eleanor found Colin weeping in the colloquially named Bird Barn, hanging uh, for dear life from Mystery's neck. Even the bird looked sad. Shut up, side saddle. Colin grunted when Eleanor walked in. I wasn't crying. I didn't say anything, Eleanor responded. Whatever, Colin said. You ready to do this? We went over the routine, Colin, Eleanor said. I'll hit my marks. Nah, not that. You ready, you know, for what's after. He gestured wildly with his arms. After the circus, I mean. Oh, Eleanor said. I don't know. Yeah, me too. That day's performance was the best attended since the Infinite Circus opened an infinitely long time ago. Back then, the attendees were mostly single-celled organisms and time travelers. Turns out, there are a lot of time travelers around. Anyway, after the show, the circus thanked the audience for its support and bid them farewell. Farewell. The question on the performer's mind, of course, was what happens to them. We're the Infinite Circus, the tired old ringmaster told the now ex-performers assembled under the big top. He lifted his top hat from his head and ruffled his orange hair. And remember, nothing that's infinite really ever goes away. Tell that to my paycheck, Colin called back to scattered laughter. And with that, the big top folded in on itself. They say you can't fold something more than a finite number of times, but the infinite circus proved that wrong, even if no one was there to witness it. The circus, all the tents, the equipment, the concessions, and the performers were folded into... Well, no one really knows. The Infinite Circus and the last of the species of Tomads, for all practical purposes, disappeared. Except, after the new off-ramp from the bypass was built and traffic to the planet resumed, the inevitable development plans sprung up. Luxury resorts, restaurants, gaming venues, and cities around those things for the workers to live in spread across the planet once again like the rash Colin once got after a night of drunken partying on Plorton. One night... Seven-year-old Oswald, vacationing with his folks who came from the Galaxy Metal Thrash, who came for the Galaxy Metal Thrash Orchestra concert, awoke. Oswald went to the window of his hotel room and, though sleepy, was certain he saw a huge bird. Buzzard, maybe? Ostrich? He wasn't sure. But he saw it soar across the moon, or one of them anyway, and in the distance, there was music. So, turns out, the circus maybe really is infinite. And that's our show. 
Thanks to Kevin McLeod and CompTech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Mike Mann for the Mad Mike Hughes theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, but make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts, Lance in Hand, and unseat an oncoming review of this podcast from your keyboard such that it lands gently on five stars. Or something. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also look us up on Instagram. There might be stuff there. You never know. Also, you can call and leave us a voicemail. I'm never going to answer the phone, so you don't actually have to talk to me. But you can tell me stuff. 563-265-1978. Call about whatever damn thing you want. And there's a pretty good chance I'll play it on the show. Check out the new website, which isn't new anymore. www. I really need to change that part of the, my copy here. Anyway, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. What you're going to see there? All sorts of stuff. You're going to get info, social media, links to episodes for this podcast, Atari Bytes, and my other show, the monthly It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, a celebration of all things related to the Peanuts comic strip. The strip itself, the TV specials, the movies, the merchandise, the mind of Charles Schultz, cartoonist. Um, we've had guests of all kinds, authors, playwrights, um, knowledgeable people. We've even had, uh, we even had a voice actor did the voice of Charlie Brown in a whole slew of TV specials. All sorts of stuff every month. You never know what you're going to find. So go check that out because you are a Snoopy fan. Come on, you know you are. Or you definitely have friends and family who are. So tell them to go listen to that. You want to know more about the podcast? Go to carnivalofgleecreations.com. What else is over there? Information about the books I've written, because I have. Um, In the Saint Nick of Time is a novel that I wrote. And I also have a collection of short stories called Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games and hot thoughts. Some of those stories might be familiar to you if you've been listening to the podcast for a while because they came from this very show. That's right. Now in book form, so you don't have to listen to my annoying voice, but you can still enjoy the stories. Information and links to just some of the places that you can order those books, in print and ebook, are there on the website. Go check it out. Please also consider supporting the show financially by becoming a regular subscriber. How can you do that? You go to the Atari Bytes page on Patreon.com and become a subscriber. Um, if you do, you can get access to episodes early, or you can get bonus content. I put a uh, special episodes up there that aren't part of the regular weekly feed, and you can get access to those if you subscribe to the podcast. Plus, you can be like the really cool dudes, Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, and Sean Courtney, who are already subscribers. So be like those guys. And if nothing else, head over there, become a subscriber so you can keep an eye on them, because somebody probably should. I think I mentioned the Zazzle.com store earlier, AB underscore pod underscore store. There are still go play some old games they've missed you, shirts and mugs over there. Some point in 2020, that store will be overhauled. If you have thoughts on what you would like to see over there, uh, let me know. Next time on Atari Bytes. We're sticking with the 7800 for a while. It was fun this week, so I thought I'd do it again. We're going to play Centipede for the 7800. I had sort of a, what would you call it, a brain fart today, and I pulled up the Centipede cartridge and started playing that this morning uh, before I suddenly realized, well, wait, that's not the game I'm doing this week. So I actually played a little bit today, and it's pretty fun. So I'm looking forward to doing that proper for the episode next week. So until next time, Go play some old games. They've missed you.